when we don't account for the Christian calendar, it creates a void where an alternative liturgy takes its place. It eclipses it, so to speak, to use language of the, the, the title of the book. Welcome to Season 5 of Public Worship and the Christian Life, a podcast produced by the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship. This season highlights the new Worship and Witness book series by CICW and published through Cascade Books, an imprint of Wiffenstock. The Worship and Witness series seeks to foster a rich, interdisciplinary conversation on the theology and practice of public worship, a conversation that will be integrative and expansive. CICW staff member Noel Snyder, also one of this series' editors, and Kristen Verholst talk with the authors of the first seven books in this series. We are pleased you've joined us in this conversation, and we look forward to sharing this learning with you. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Kristen Verholst, a staff member at the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship, and I'm so pleased to have my guest today, on the podcast, Paul Lewis Metzger, who is Professor of Christian Theology and Theology of Culture at Multnomah University and Seminary in Portland, Oregon. Paul also is the director of the Institute for Cultural Engagement, New Wine, New Wineskins. Paul, thanks so much for joining me today. Great to be with you, Kristen. Thanks for this opportunity. Well, I'm excited today to talk about your new book, part of the series that the Institute is sponsoring with Cascade Books. The series is called Worship in Witness, and your book is titled Setting the Spiritual Clock, Sacred Time Breaking Through the Secular Eclipse. And I would like to start us out by just asking you, why did you write the book? What's the story behind it? Uh, thank you, Kristen. And so back in the day when I was teaching a seminary class and some very keen, thoughtful seminarians were engaging material related to a book on ecclesiology I wrote for Baker Brazos, Exploring Ecclesiology with a colleague Brad Harper, uh, we were talking about uh, the church calendar. And one of the students, Holden Dorgi, had said that he was struck by how so often when we don't account for the Christian calendar, it creates a void where an alternative liturgy um, takes its place. It eclipses it, so to speak, to use language of the the, the title of the book, uh, the themes behind the book, The Secular Eclipse. So that just stayed with me, that, that whole theme of an alternative or an alternate or uh, a different liturgy taking the place of the sacred liturgy of the church calendar. And so I just, it stayed with me over the years. And then I started writing, reflecting on it further. And it just, it kind of materialized uh, as this book. As I mentioned, this is part of a, a new series that we're doing. And your book, I think, was just the second one. So it's been out for a couple of years. And what have you been hearing from your readers? What questions are they posing back to you or comments? Well, I think, you know, one of the issues that uh, the book sought to highlight was uh, our Trinitarian God, uh, a Christocentric thrust. So I think that stood out to many readers that, you know, ultimately it's not 
the the time of the church calendar that should shape us, but it's Christ in the fullness of time that shapes us. So it's again, he's the subject and the the church calendar is the predicate, so to speak, in this position. So that stood out uh, to readers. I think also that it was um, irenic. It's not sectarian. It's not in any way, shape, or form seeking to dismiss or demean the secular. But we need to account as Christians for our calendar and not allow it to be eclipsed. But it doesn't mean that we should um, disparage the secular calendar. So there's a, a navigating, a dialogical, hopefully an ironic spirit, an ecumenical spirit that even includes the secular domain. Uh, I was struck by one of the reviews that uh, indicated you know, while understanding it wasn't meant to be a book on church liturgy, it's really to introduce to people who aren't taking seriously the church calendar to help them acclimate. But I thought there were some helpful items, like if I were to do another book or uh, another edition, you know, maybe accounting more for lectionaries. Um, what really stood out to me, fascinating point by a reviewer, Gordon Lathrop, about uh, who's a liturgist, on, you know, it had been interesting to see how the author, that is me, would engage some of the uh, dialogue that was taking place historically in the ancient church with, uh, you know, the pagans, you know, and I mean that constructively, uh, you know, in terms of the sun and equinox and solstice and things of that sort. I, you know, I, I work with neo-pagans and I think, well, that would be fascinating. I would, I would love to get into that more. So I thought that was really inspiring to me to hear that and reflect for that, I thought, oh, I wish I had done that. Uh, but, you know, there's always more time to do these types of things. That's right. I'm recognizing that some of our listeners, of course, are going to be very familiar with the Christian year or the church calendar, those terms. But if we've got some people listening here who are new to this idea, this way of embodying time, how would you define um, what you see as the uh, this calendar you're referring to, the Christian year calendar? Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's really seeking to account for the story of Jesus Christ, and I mean, it's certainly uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit from a an Orthodox Christian perspective. But it's really the biblical story. It's uh, so. I mean, I I do deal with Jewish festivals. I was actually at a rabbi's home the other day with the world religions class I teach, and we were just you know he was showing us you know they had lived in a tent you know it's just we just finished that with the uh, one of the great pilgrimage festivals, and just walking into the rabbi's home was like walking into biblical the biblical story and i it's like walking into narnia so i think there's a sense in which it's a it's a new way of being it's a new way because we we exist in time and space as creatures we're not atemporal aspatial beings we're temporal and spatial beings so walking into the rabbi's home it was very ta- um tangible it was it was very much flesh and blood which is so true of jewish thought i mean you know how they make use of symbols and reenact so I would I would always say that you know it's it's the biblical story, it's the story of God and Jesus Christ and the Spirit, uh, the community of saints. So it's like we're inhabiting this universe, uh, a, a new way of being in space and time. Even though it's ancient, it's it's renewed and um, renewing uh, every year as I have to constantly learn to re-inhabit, to have a, a Christo. Um, centric imagination. So those are some of the types of things I'd want to get at. Uh, uh, and feel free to press into it more if if I need to go deeper into that, Kristen. No, I love the idea of um, for those who do practice this calendar, but there's always a renewed sense as you enter each season again 
mm-hmm. um, that there are deeper ways to embody and inhabit um, these practices. I wonder if you might pull out a few um, examples, even from your own worship community, worship life, where you found this renewed sense of um, a practice in worship that just deeply connects to this Christian calendar or Christian way of embodying time. The one that has been most pressing to me and impressed upon me in the last couple of years has been Lent. Uh, And uh, in my evangelical tradition, and I'm thoroughly evangelical, um, hopefully I see the strengths, hopefully I see the weaknesses. Um, And those are hopefully my strengths and my weaknesses, you know, you know, but it's Lent is not something that we take very seriously in many evangelical circles uh, for a variety of reasons. I think it's the culture of celebration more generally, prosperity gospel that can easily uh, enter in to any American Christian's psyche. It doesn't have to just be evangelical Christian, but I, I think for many evangelicals, oh, that's a Catholic thing as if that's like necessarily problematic or what have you. Um, And I um, have found Lent uh, both life-giving and in a sense um, a longing for more because of it. Uh, You know, in in the the manual or the worship handbook of your own denomination, Christian Reformed, you know, it's not simply focusing on the sufferings of Christ, which it is that, but it's also preparing us as part of the baptismal imagery for union with Christ through, you know, baptism on Easter, so to speak, that union with Christ. It's it's the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension uh, that it, it's Lent is part of. It's all part of the same story. But for, for my family and me, with uh, you may know that my son endured a catastrophic brain injury in January 21. Uh, Christopher, um, bearer of Christ, as his name means, mm-hmm. endured this injury as a young adult, and um, it's a daily sojourn. And there's a daily sense of lament and Lent. And I've often felt lonely and forlorn the last few years because so often if you only have a culture of celebration and liturgy of celebration, uh, Lent actually provides comfort. Lament provides comfort in the midst of it. Uh, and and it's, it's not a funeral dirge. It actually means that God identifies with us. Christ walks those adult care facility halls with me. And so that's life giving to me. It provides hope that it's not a hope that's unrealistic. It's very realistic. And it enters us, enters into our lives and our imaginations in the midst of pain. So I, I'd say it's with more longing, actually, that we would take Lent all the more seriously, because I'm not alone in that. I meet people all the time who struggle with mental or with depression, mental illness, as godly Christians, and uh Lent and lament, 40% of the Psalms, right? Uh, you know, it's just so much part. So that one probably has been most pressing. I mean, that that occurred right after the book uh, came out. So it was in the book, but I had to start living the book mm-hmm. in a way that I wasn't expecting or wanting to. I, and yet I'm thankful for Lent. I'm thankful for lament. And it's a joyful sorrow in the midst of it because he is a man of sorrow, familiar with somebody. He goes through that with us. So I can go on and on about that. But it's that that's where it's it stands out most to me. Yeah. This makes me think, of course, a a trauma we all have come through, which is the COVID um, pandemic. And that, too, really messed up with people's um, expectations around time and even embodiment. I wonder if there's any learning or um, connections with this way of, of 
a rhythm of embodying um, our our Christian life that does help us prepare for those moments in life when it's going to be disruption, trauma, pain. Yes. Uh, thank you, Kristen. Uh, what a powerful uh, thought you shared and question you're, you're asking. So thank you. Uh, you know, I think part of the Christian life, especially now, I mean, because we're not out of COVID and, and the aftermath of everything that occurred culturally, politically, and in so many ways related to this global pandemic. And I think disruption, to use your word, is so much a part of life. And I'm I'm learning very slowly how with our son's situation, which was right in the midst of COVID, not being able to see him right away, um, et cetera, et cetera feeling that loss, uh, feeling very um, uh, much, you know, lacking power and uh, an ability to engage, feeling very helpless in many respects, I think, but learning not to be surprised by surprises. I mean, we're always going to be surprised, but not to be so surprised by the surprises, learning to be successful in our adaptations life. And, you know, the, the whole theme of the incarnation, while he came gently and meekly, strength under control, so to speak, it was a disruption into the world. I mean, he came in a very disruptive time in the Roman Empire, and, and it disrupts. God disrupts our lives in order to heal us and make us whole, but there is a divine disruption. And, you know, I'm learning to mine conflicts for gold. I'm learning to see these disruptions as a way in which God breaks into our tragedy. God breaks into uh, the other disruptions of life. So. You know, when I think of this, like, in some respects, COVID has caused us to speed up in time uh, because it, it causes us to get more animated in our thoughts and almost in a state of panic, perhaps. But I'm having to learn to settle down and slow down in my thought processes to to take the deep breath. And the church liturgy causes us to to hit the pause button. It's not simply about being at a place on time. It's were we there fully in time? Yeah, and mm -hmm. I think of Wendell Berry's poem, The Man Went on Vacation, but he was never in his vacation. He was always filming his vacation. And I think so often I'm just constantly going through life and not really experiencing life. You know, it's time shaping us and using us at times rather than us making the most of time. And that usually doesn't mean like milking it, mm -hmm. but really was I present to others? Were others present to me? God with us, Emmanuel. So I think in the midst of COVID, it's a great opportunity for us with all this disruption to say, Lord, what about the divine disruption in my life? And the church liturgy causes us to be more mindful. Uh, it's the fullness of time. It's kairos, not simply chronos. It's the matter of in the fullness of time Christ came. So I think as a mentor of mine, who's a, a, a friend of Calvin, Dr. John Perkins said, you know, he wants to be creative in his suffering. And I think there's a sense in which the church liturgy helps us to be creative in our suffering, creative in the midst of disruptions, because God allowed himself to be disrupted by our time and space and disrupted it from the inside out to make us whole. He, as Karl Barth says, you know, that God makes space and time for us in Christ. also makes me think of a particular age group, young adults or emerging adults. And um, I think they have been deeply affected by the 
pandemic, but but more so by just a lot of other um, experiences at this moment in time. And they, I think the you know research is clear that they're uh, a very spiritual group of people, but perhaps not religious, or at least in a certain sense that many of us um, who lead in the church would would connect with. What might um, a way of engaging sacred time, setting a, a clock by the life of Christ, how can we that be a, a point of connection for, for young adults who are deeply thoughtful about these sort of things, but maybe don't have the same religious language or inclinations? Well, yes, thank you, Kristen. And uh, I, I work a lot on themes of sacred and secular and uh, the whole point of liminality and uh, being in tr- places of transitions. And I think a lot of young people, people of all walks of life and age groups, I think especially now feel that sense of liminality of being in transition, in, in transitional spaces in life because of all the disruptions that have gone on. But, you know, religion, the Latin root, some have said religio means to rebind a broken cosmos. I think for, for many people, when they think about spirituality, they're thinking about that rebinding element. So it's, if we think about religion as compartmentalized, parochial, uh, detached, well, yes, I mean, who would like religion like that? Spirituality is holistic. It's not fragmented. At least that's often what it's about. Um, it's it's hopefully more ironic, you know, the way we often think of religion. So I think, you know, biblical religion is a very good thing. But when I think we talk about spirituality today, I think for many people, what would have been in the core of religion in so many contexts in the ancient past, they mean by that spirituality today. So if we just play off spirituality, uh, I think, you know, a lot of young people, from what I'm reading, are just really questioning you know, buying stuff. Is that really what it's about? So they're not wanting to invest in buying stuff, but buying experiences. Uh, And even more so than buying experiences is experiencing lives with others, whether you buy it or not. And And I think the church calendar is about a certain kind of experience, being present to God, to be present to others. I mean, throughout church history, I've always been fascinated that every Sunday when I was in England with part of an Anglican church, when we lived in Japan, uh, you know, the people are worshiping across the world, different time zones, but today, celebrating Christ today, and that kind of global phenomenon of worshiping with people across space. Fascinating. I, I remember uh, the movie on Malcolm X, you know, very different context. But when he went to Mecca and he was finding Muslims coming together to Mecca for the pilgrimage, it blew his mind. People of all walks of life uh, and such. I think for Christians, you know, that sense of all walks of life coming together at this time, there's a connection with a lot of young people feeling disrupted, uprooted. There's a connection that can happen even globally as people participate in this liturgy through our own age, but then also through the ages that we're not uprooted. We're not always to be fragmented. And that that sense of meaningfulness with people, that, that we have rootedness in the midst of having so many connections taken away from us. That's what I'd want to speak to, and that it can be ironic. It doesn't have to be pejorative, uh, paternalistic, parochial. Uh, the church calendar is not meant to be us versus them. It's to engage dialogically, openly within a secular age, 
but to make sure that the Christian calendar really is Christian, that we are accounting for the story of Christ. And I think people are still compelled and fascinated with that person. Um, Jesus through the centuries, as Yaroslav Pelikan wrote, you know, his significance throughout the century. So I think he looms large. He must loom large. And that's what I would invite people to think through is like, how can we make sure we hit the pause button and how we're using time, how time is using us to make sure that we are mindful of living well with others in space and time today. And the church calendar as offering an ancient spirituality Mm. can help us as we seek to explore spirituality in the contemporary context. Reminded me at the beginning of the book, I think you reference uh, Robert Weber and the ancient future worship as a. Yes. As I was a just thinking source. about it. Yeah. 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 Ancient <laughs> future is, faith. Yeah. I mean, Weber, who, yeah. who better than Weber to articulate that? Yeah. To yeah, help us remember history going back, but also looking ahead. And it's yeah. Yeah, so. Back to it, the future. Back to the there, future. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it does uh, root you in a really healthy way. Any little gems that you might want to lift up in in the book that were exciting for you as you put it together or? um... Sure. I mean, I I think, for example, uh, even looking at some of the secular holidays, Mm. uh, I enjoyed writing about the 4th of July, not to demean or disparage, but then to reconfigure. Okay. So yes, I think it's good for Christians to account for national holidays. If I'm in another country, maybe it's Guy Fawkes Day in, in, in England. But, uh, but you know, when we lived in Japan again, you know, uh, accounting for holidays. So wherever one lives in the world, it's not to disparage holidays. I've loved how a particular Christian group, a brethren group, made use of bone or a bone, which is, you know, the ancestral spirits coming home. Now, this Christian church, very concerted church, wasn't going to, in Nagano, Japan, wasn't going to, you know, welcome back the spirits of the ancestors in the same way. But they said, let's have a service where we remember our ancestors. And they invited some of their, you know, pluralistic neighbors to that. I thought that's genius. It's brilliant. Mm. But at the same time, we have ancestry in the faith, the great cloud of witnesses that the church calendar accounts for, you know, like even some of the great saints days. So I think there's a way in which we need to account for it. And in sometimes secular contexts or very other religious pluralistic contexts can teach us because the Japanese understand we're not disconnected from those who gave, came before us. We we have some of that more so in America. And here was this Japanese Christian group doing that. But so whether it's secular holidays, you know, or like from our vantage point or non-Christian holidays, bone or a bone, uh, or 4th of July, Memorial Day. So I was writing about that and uh, again, uh, Gordon Lathrop, in, in his discussion, reflection, review of it for Worship Journal, uh, was struck by that. You know, how I was engaging, not in a disparaging manner, but in an ironic manner, these secular holidays, but also framing them from a Christian lens, because, again, we have to guard against Christian nationalism. And I, and I think it's a very deeply disturbing phenomenon to me. Uh, and I think how we can use the 4th of July, or it uses us, or Memorial Day, and yet how to honor people, how to honor uh, people in our society, you know, not to to mock, not to be cynical, but to always make sure Christ is the first, middle, and final word in all that's his story, not our story, um, apart from him, as the Christian calendar rightly presents. Mm, Yes, agreed. Paul, I'm really grateful for your book, uh, Setting the Spiritual Clock. 
And I wonder if you want to offer a closing word of encouragement, especially to those who um, plan and lead worship on a weekly basis, are um, invited into a liturgical calendar or are thinking about um, beginning to do that. What would you encourage them with? Well, I think for those who may be experiencing this for the first time, it can be a real uphill battle. Uh, because like if you're leading a, a, a worship context where this is not part of uh, the the weekly, the monthly, the annual cycle uh, of how we see things, uh, that can, again, be quite challenging, like helping your congregation see the significance of this. Why would this matter? We've never done it this way before. And so I think, for, you know, at the very least, for them to be saying this is how it's spoken to them because if they trust you as a worship leader and it's it's like wow this really speaks to this particular pastor this worship leader uh it's like tom sawyer where you know supposedly he's painting the fence and he hates painting the fence it was something he had to do and he's lying through his teeth telling his friends how much he loves painting that fence and and they finally they say wow this must be great and they want to pay him to do it so he gets he basically gets paid <laughs> to hand over uh, the the paintbrush, because at least he was sensing or showing that he actually seemingly loved it. But if we really do love it, we're not faking it. We're not. We're actually smoking what we're selling. The people would actually be struck by the fact that this really speaks to us. Like when I said about Lent, I mm-hmm. tell my students that I said it's, this speaks to me. So even if it doesn't speak to them yet, that it speaks to you, they might taste and see that the Lord is good in that context. So that's one thing. And then I think also just in the challenges, COVID, post-COVID, the culture wars, to know that the church throughout the centuries has faced so many challenges. The biblical, I mean, you know, we think about even Christ's life and the the children in Bethlehem, you know, slaughtered uh, and, you know, through Herod and all the upheaval in the Roman Empire. But, you know, Christ rose bodily from the dead. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. And church, a suffering church. Uh, throughout the globe, throughout its history, that 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 resilience, that resilient hope. I think that the church calendar, when pastors and worship leaders and congregations are going through upheaval, thinking about are we going to be able to make it this next year? Is our church going to close? It's like, but he doesn't close. Um, our triune God doesn't close, and God will be with us until the end of the day, throughout the ages. God with us, Emmanuel. That to me, the church calendar reminds us of over and over again. It didn't start yesterday. The church didn't start with me and it won't end with me. And we're part of a story much bigger than our own. And that Christ has big shoulders. He's been to Mordor and back again. And we can count on him. That's what I'd want to close with. Paul Metzger, thanks so much for talking with me today. Kristen, thank you so much. Pleasure and an honor.